Well, this is a, a very exciting time. For the first time in over a decade, we have a new exhibit coming to the museum. So we are incredibly grateful that the National Museum of the United States Air Force assigned an F-117 stealth fighter to the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. And we will be receiving that for a grand uh, unveiling on November the 11th. And so while November 11th, of course, is Veterans Day, and we honor all of those who have served our nation, this is also a chance to honor an aircraft that's not only served our, our nation, but but also transformed warfighting in general with stealth technology. Whoa, that is a great announcement. You just heard the president and CEO, Tyson Weinert, from the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum located in McMinnville, Oregon, making an announcement about a new F-117 stealth fighter that will arrive at the museum on Veterans Day 2023, which is November 11th. I hope some of you are there to see it and to support the museum as it is refurbished for exhibition. It's going to be a great day. And now, let's get on with the program. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Thanks for being here. We have a great program for you today. For this episode, we greet Mr. Tyson Weinert, the president and CEO of the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum located in McMinnville, Oregon. By the end of this episode, you'll want to join them in their fantastic mission to be a force of curiosity and courage for kids of all ages to gain the confidence to take flight. They're preserving and honoring aviation history and providing the resources to inspire the next generation of aviators and space explorers. I'm Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and I'm coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature information about museums, cultural and heritage institutions, associations, historical and genealogical societies, and history-focused media creators across the United States. This episode will drop on November 6, 2023, but let's not forget that Veterans Day is November 11, 2023. Here's some information to help everyone remember the difference between Veterans Day, Memorial Day, and the other military holidays in the United States. 
Just a reminder about the military holidays we observe annually in these United States. Armed Forces Day is to acknowledge those still in uniform serving our nation. Veterans Day is for those who served and have hung up the uniform. We honor those who served. Memorial Day is for those who never made it out of their uniform. We reflect on those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our country. Please teach your children to observe these days each year. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but you can find us on nearly all podcast platforms, as well as Rumble, Getter, Minds, TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we meet with Ms. Linda Whiting, the director of the Fraser Farmstead Museum. This is an absolutely beautiful museum complex located in Milton Freewater, Oregon, and listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It's operated and maintained as a restored house and farm museum by the Milton Freewater Area Historical Society. The Fraser home was built in 1892 and houses a fine collection of antique furnishings and other items of the 19th century daily living. Most of the furnishings are the original items to the home. The site also houses a 1918 barn, a carriage house, and several other buildings, all of which were an integral part of the turn of the century working farm. Join us on November 20th for our Thanksgiving episode with Linda Whiting and the Fraser Farmstead Museum. I've really been looking forward to meeting Linda and learning more about the society and the museum because I'll tell you, it's absolutely a beautifully preserved property and well worth a visit and your support. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historical November events for this episode on November 2nd, 1947. The first and only flight of the Howard Hughes Spruce Goose flying boat occurred in Long Beach Harbor, California. It flew about a mile at an altitude of 70 feet, costing $25 million. The 200-ton plywood eight-engine Hercules was the world's largest airplane, designed, built, and flown by Hughes. It later became a tourist attraction alongside the Queen Mary ship at Long Beach and has since been moved to McMinnville, Oregon. Happy birthday to American humorist Will Rogers, who lived from 1879 to 1935. He was born in Ulugo, Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. All I know is what I read in the newspapers, he once joked. He was killed in an airplane crash with aviator Wiley Post near Point Barrow, Alaska. On November 5, 1911, aviator C.P. Snow completed the first transcontinental flight across America, landing at Pasadena, California. He had taken off from Sheepshead Bay, New York on September 17th and flew a distance of 3,417 miles. Happy birthday to Polish chemist Marie Curie, who lived from 1867 to 1934. She was born in Warsaw, Poland in 1903. She and her husband received the Nobel Prize for Physics for their discovery of the element radium. On November 8, 1895, X-rays, electromagnetic rays, were discovered by Wilhelm Röntgen 
at the University of Wunsberg in Germany. On November 14, 1889, newspaper reporter Nellie Bly set out from New York to beat the record of Jules Verne's imaginary hero, Phileas Fogg, who traveled around the world in 80 days. Bly, pen name for Elizabeth Cochran, returned 72 days later to a tumultuous welcome in New York. On November 19, 1939, construction of the first presidential library began as President Franklin D. Roosevelt laid the cornerstone next to his home in Hyde Park, New York. Roosevelt donated the land, but public donations funded the library building, which was dedicated on June 30, 1941. On November 26, 1832, the first horse-drawn streetcar carried passengers in New York City along 4th Avenue between Prince Street and 14th Street. On November 29, 1929, American explorer Richard Byrd and Bernd Balchin completed the first airplane flight to the South Pole. Happy birthday to Winston Churchill, 1874-1965. He was born in Blenheim Palace, Oxfordshire, England. Before World War II, he held a number of high-level political offices in Britain including First Lord of the Admiralty. In May 1940, he became Prime Minister, stating, I have nothing to offer but blood, tears, toil, and sweat. His inspirational speeches, combined with his political skills and military strategy, carried Britain through the war and helped the Allies overcome the Nazi onslaught and defeat Hitler. And you can find more of Winston Churchill's speeches, and I hope you do, on internetarchive.org or winstonchurchill.org. He was a one-of-a-kind person who I believe it is in everyone's best interest to get to know better. Thank you to historyplace.com for the November events. Let's drink some tea, some Twinies tea. Really good. Let's start with a quick bio of today's guest. Tyson Weiner joined the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum on July 18, 2022 to lead the museum based on his experience at the intersection of education, innovation, and aviation. Prior to this role, Tyson grew a diverse portfolio of global clients at Luma Institute as a senior program director with innovation training programs that leverage human-centered design to help them scale a culture of innovation and design literacy. Before joining the private sector, Tyson served as a commander in the U.S. Coast Guard and was the service's lead entrepreneur. In this role, Tyson was responsible for reimagining how innovation could inspire the U.S. Coast Guard's 88,000-member workforce with an inclusive mindset to ensure all active-duty civilian, reservist, and auxiliarist members had an equal opportunity to collaborate and innovate. In doing so, he introduced the service's first crowdsourcing platform and human-centered design methodology as essential components of the U.S. Coast Guard's innovation program. Now, as the president and CEO of the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum, Tyson is leading the museum's efforts to serve as a force of curiosity and courage so that kids of all ages can gain the confidence to take flight. Tyson is credited with leading the human-centered design movement in the United States Coast Guard in 2013 
and joined other design-based initiatives throughout the federal government in the years following. In his collaborative efforts, Tyson directly influenced strategic initiatives at the highest levels of government, including leading a human-centered design workshop for the First Lady's Joining Forces program in 2015, an executive session for the Department of Homeland Security's Equal Employment Opportunity and Civil Rights Strategy stakeholders, and multiple strategy-based workshops for the United States Coast Guard's senior leaders. Tyson's work was reflected in the Innovation Best Practices published in the Obama Administration's 2015 Strategy for American Innovation. Tyson is a graduate of the United States Coast Guard Academy and served in Guam, Florida, California, England, and Hawaii. Notable accomplishments include leading an aviation detachment on a six-month deployment that circumnavigated the globe in 2009. This unique deployment resulted in the U.S. Coast Guard's first apprehension of suspected pirates in almost 200 years after Commander Weinert's crew disrupted an attack on a merchant vessel traveling through the Gulf of Aden. Tyson went on to attend George Washington University and earned a Master of Public Administration before serving his final tour in the United States Coast Guard at its headquarters in Washington, D.C. Tyson's passion for innovation, education, human-centered design, and bringing ideas to fruition resulted in being awarded two patents from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. When not at work, Tyson enjoys spending time with his family, experiencing and performing live music, and getting outdoors as much as possible. All right. Welcome to the program, Tyson. Thank you very much. It's really great to be here. Nice having you here. How are you today? I'm doing well. It's always a good day when we can tell our story. I'm sure you hear this all the time, but your museum is absolutely beautiful. Thank you very much. I mean, when I look at that and it's all glass and it's it's just the future, it's the 21st century, it just screams to me of something in one of those movies that's like sci-fi in the future. Wonderful. Thank you. Listeners, you should really check out the website at www.evergreenmuseum.org. They have some great photos of the museum, and it's really beautiful. McMinnville is just south of Portland, Oregon, and the county seat of Yamhill County. It's in the heart of the Willamette Valley, and all the wineries and other farms in the area. It's a really nice place. Can you tell us about any favorite places you think people visiting the area should not miss seeing while they visit? Uh, that's a great question. It's, I think it's, it's quite powerful just to come to the region in general. And then especially when you learn more about our museum and even the history of the Spruce Goose, which, which we'll get to, you start to imagine what was the journey of the spruce goose itself. And I think that if you if you can appreciate the logistics and the journey that the, the spruce goose made, you see the surrounding area and the rolling hills and the terrain of the Willamette Valley and appreciate the rivers, especially in a whole new light. Yeah, it's a great place. I noticed that along with the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum, there's the Evergreen Space Museum playground in the same area. And there's the Spruce Goose ASME Landmark. There's the Evergreen Giant Screen Theater, the Evergreen Lodge, and the Evergreen Wings and Waves Water Park. Are all of those properties a part of the same organization? 
that's a great question. We, as a museum, function as an independent 501c3 nonprofit. And so through that lens, the museum occupies only the aviation museum as well as the space museum. And then we share the Evergreen Event and Conference Center with a for-profit company uh, that's called Evergreen Events. And, And as a museum, we preserve all kinds of engaging educational experiences, which includes that giant screen theater that you mentioned. But what I really appreciate about where the museum is located is that it's on a a large campus. And so for all of the for-profit entities that technically are not part of the museum, we all work together very well. We strive to be great neighbors with one another because we believe in a strategic vision for the campus, which we often refer to as the rising tide. And so the concept now is that while you might come to the campus and spend a number of hours here, what would it look like in the future if you can spend a number of days here? And so while there is a for-profit entity that runs the Wings and Waves Water Park, the Evergreen Lodge, and Evergreen Events and Conference Center, soon there will be a hotel on the campus and another reception hall that really welcomes guests traveling from all over in a very meaningful way that they really make the most of their time here. Fantastic. You've always got a lot going on. You and your team, I'd like to congratulate you on the museum's 22nd anniversary this year. Thank you very much. What's the history of the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum? Well, Dell Smith had his own series of aviation-based companies and wanted to to have an, an impact in the area. And his son, was Captain Michael King Smith. And Captain Michael King Smith was really passionate not only about aviation, but also around education. And so he wanted to establish a museum and an educational institute, which started with a concept early in the, the early 90s and really became legitimized when he, he wrote the winning application to receive the Spruce Goose when it was going to be moved from Long Beach. And so there are some some great references that are available online. One of my favorite is is a documentary by a local documentarian named Peter Dibble. And he created a documentary called Oregon Bound. And it really captures not only the history of the Spruce Goose, but how the Spruce Goose moved to Oregon and why it moved to Oregon. So it's very educational, very well done. And we highly recommend it to our fans of the museum. So how did it get to McMinnville? Del Smith was the founder of Evergreen International Aviation. And what uh, Del Smith did is he had a a number of aviation-based companies. And one of his sons is who wanted to take his passion for education and and eventually starting a museum to a whole whole other level. So, So his name was Captain Michael King Smith. Okay, and that's the name of the of the street that the museum's on. That's correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. So there's a whole series of of ways that we can honor and respect the many contributions and sacrifices by Captain Michael King Smith. Unfortunately, when he was in the process of of raising funds to to continue the museum effort in 1995, 2 years into his effort, he was tragically killed 
in a car accident. Oh, man. Uh, and so moving on from, from, from that tragedy and still trying to make his vision come to fruition, Mr. Smith and a whole community rallied in a very meaningful way to make sure that the, the museum could come to fruition. Wow. What an effort. Wow. That's really a shame he didn't get to see that. Could you share some insights into the significance of aviation and space history and heritage? Sure. I, I, I'd say it's no surprise that man has always looked to the stars. The idea that human beings look to the stars and it's a source of inspiration. And so when we think about that, and especially realizing uh, recent events, just like the annular eclipse, uh, that happened. There, there, I think that we as humans remain fascinated, and it's it's captured in different ways by different efforts throughout history. And so, as a museum, fostering a venue that is exciting and inspirational, where people can share in that curiosity with one another, uh, it's great to be a venue where people can convene and celebrate that curiosity together. No kidding. Are there any specific challenges or opportunities unique to preserving aviation and space heritage in McMinnville? Perhaps a, a challenge is that McMinnville is not necessarily right off the, the interstate. So it's not too far from Portland or Salem, but it is in such a special place in McMinnville in Yamhill County. So the, the surrounding area is absolutely stunning. And so we do encourage people to make that extra effort to come a little bit outside of the metro area because we like to certainly believe that it's worth the effort to come visit us. Oh, yeah, totally, totally worth it. I've been on, uh, on the uh, MAPS application that's very popular, and you go on Street View, and it's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. What are some lesser-known facts or stories about aviation and space history that the museum helps to uncover? I'd say that while a lot of attention goes to the Spruce Goose, what sometimes is missed is the impact that the Spruce Goose, or its formal name, the Hughes Flying Boat, that it had on an entire aerospace industry. As a former pilot, the idea that I had redundant systems and hydraulic control, all of these, these innovations came from Howard Hughes and his mindset that were first demonstrated in the Hughes flying boat. Oh. So, so the idea that so many people come here and they see the Spruce Goose as a very large airplane and as a very large exhibit, it's what's inside that I think is so special to tell people because it's about the the perseverance of the human spirit. And, and as Howard Hughes liked to say, making the seemingly impossible become possible. So, so sharing those inside stories and the kind of the behind the scenes elements is, is a, is a really fun way to, to connect with our guests from all over the world and make their, their visit really meaningful. Yeah, very cool. SpaceX is blowing things up right now with new technologies and reusing boosters, landing them, and re then reusing them, and that kind oh, of thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is a, an exciting time for space exploration, for sure. And, and I think a big part of that is also just what is within the realm of the possible now. So when we were growing up, 
a lot of the space exploration was was inherently governmental. And, and who else would take on that kind of risk or who might be willing to fund it other than a government? Um, but the fact that the private sector is, is, is involved as heavily as it is advancing innovation at the rate that it is, I think it's, it's truly an exciting time to be alive. Yeah. Do you think we'll end up on Mars? I think that humankind will end up on Mars. I'm not sure if I would sign up for that trip, but I would appreciate wh- whomever does. Yeah, me too. I understand that the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum is a Smithsonian affiliate. What's that all about? Well, it's a it's a pretty exciting reciprocal membership program. And so the idea is that is that by being a Smithsonian affiliate, you can actually have free admission to over 70 other affiliate museums nationwide. So it's a pretty great opportunity. So if I if I become a member of the Evergreen Museum, then I also get access to other Smithsonian-affiliated museums? That's correct. So you're always looking for the Smithsonian affiliate logo to make sure that you can comply. And if you're ever in doubt, it's always great to call ahead. Oh, yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool because they're all across the country, right? That's right. Oh, wow. All right, Tyson, I'd like to provide listeners with the contact information for the museum. You can find the museum on the web at www.evergreenmuseum.org. And of course, they're on Facebook as Evergreen Museum. You can find them on YouTube as well as Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. Their address is 500 Northeast Captain Michael King Smith Way in McMinnville, Oregon, 97128. You can phone them at 503-434-4180. You can email them at info at evergreenmuseum.org. Admission to the museum is $22 for adults. Veterans and seniors is $18. Youths 5 through 15 is $12. And children under 5 are free. Tyson, could you kindly share with the audience an overview of the communities you serve the variety of your membership, and the mission and objectives of your museum? Sure. The communities that we serve, not only throughout Yamhill County and in connecting with our local school district, but really we just want to be a place of discovery and learning for, for kids of all ages. And so the idea that we want to be a, a safe and suitable and inspiring alternative to some of the other things that that the Portland metro area or, or maybe Salem are known for. And so that, that for anybody either visiting or local residents, uh, every time you come to the museum, there's a chance to learn something new. So we often say that every day is a school day here at the museum, but school can be fun, especially when you're here. And so in terms of our, our membership levels, we recently reimagined our, our memberships so that we can refine not only the offerings, but but really make them more impactful and experiential. So we have membership levels for individuals, for families, and then for, for higher levels of philanthropic contributions that, that want to have perhaps a stronger impact supporting a lot of the different activities that we have, whether it's advancing different exhibits or educational programs or any number of initiatives that never, never seems to be a, a dull moment here at the museum. And so we're always grateful for our members and their tremendous support. And really, it, it goes into advancing our, our mission. Well, our mission is to be a force of curiosity and courage. 
for kids of all ages to gain the confidence to take flight. And so what that means is that if you can imagine this, this cognitive connection of what is it to be curious, what is it to have courage, and how do those work together to instill confidence? And again, this is for, for kids of all ages. And so this is the objective, is that anybody that comes to our museum and whichever exhibit or, or experience resonates with them, they can appreciate the same experiences of the people that, that created that exhibit because clearly they were curious about something. They had the courage to go try it. And then whether they, they got it right off the bat or they stumbled and fell and got back up and dusted themselves off, that whole cycle instilled the confidence in them to carry on. And so, so the objective is to instill confidence with anybody that comes to visit. And in doing so, our mission comes to life because we start to think about how are we fostering this sense of curiosity? How do we instill this sense of courage to go try something? And then it all comes together in a pretty compelling package while people can be more confident in whatever it is they want to do in life to take flight. Yeah, you're doing some fantastic work at the museum to help with that. And we'll talk about that coming up, but it's just great work. Thank you very much. I think your museum is so cool. You've got like 150 different exhibits, different planes and, and spacecraft and all kinds of things to see. It's just a wonderful place to learn. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your background, how you came to do what you do now? Sure. Most of my career was serving on active duty in the U.S. Coast Guard. And in my service, I spent most of that time as a pilot, uh, as a helicopter pilot. I also had the, the wonderful experience of, of serving as an exchange pilot with the Royal Air Force, and, and that was absolutely phenomenal. So with a background in, in aviation, I was able to, to leverage that and, and climb through the, the ranks and then eventually served my last tour in the Coast Guard running the Coast Guard's innovation program. So for, for 88,000 people trying to understand what, what innovation is, what it is not, and how do you actually implement change for the better. And in that role of running the innovation program, I was exposed to a methodology called human-centered design, uh, which is an innovation methodology uh, that is transforming a lot of organizations uh, and, and has done so, especially over the last decade or so. And so when I left the Coast Guard, I ended up joining an institution that taught human-centered design as a methodology to a number of organizations all over the world. And these are government agencies. These are major global Fortune 500 companies and even various nonprofits. And when I saw this opportunity to lead the museum, they were specifically looking for somebody that was business savvy and could embody the intersection of aviation, innovation, and education. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to serve in this, in this capacity and to have been selected for this role. It can be certainly challenging at times, but exceptionally rewarding. And so it really is an honor to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your service to our country as well, sir. Sure. Can you tell us, and I don't know if you can explain it in, you know, so many words, but briefly, what is human-centered design? Human-centered design is the idea that what 
whatever it is you are solving for, um, you are always keeping the human top of mind. So it embraces empathy. It makes sure that you're balancing problem framing as well as problem solving. And so you always want to make sure that whatever it is you're solving for, it's always in service of the person whose life is going to be better because of what you're working on. Oh, okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. What's coming up on the horizon for the museum? Well, this is a, a very exciting time. For the first time in over a decade, we have a new exhibit coming to the museum. So we are incredibly grateful that the National Museum of the United States Air Force assigned an F-117 stealth fighter to the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. And we will be receiving that for a grand uh, unveiling on November the 11th. And so while November 11th, of course, is Veterans Day, and we honor all of those who have served our nation, this is also a chance to honor an aircraft that's not only served our, our nation, but, but also transformed warfighting in general with stealth technology. Whoa, that is a great announcement. Now, is that F-117 going to be in good shape or you have to refurbish it or anything? That is a great question. The F-117 will arrive at the museum and perhaps not look <laughs> or not look like or match the, the mental model of what people are expecting to see from, from all the pictures that they would have found on the internet or maybe even grown up with. It will resemble the basic shape. However, a lot of the leading edge and even large sections of the nose would have been removed to what the expression is called demilitarize oh, the no. aircraft so that it can be uh, displayed to the public. So of those elements that may still be classified or protected for any number of reasons, uh, they would be removed from that aircraft. And so it affords us an opportunity to really shine a, a light on our restoration team, who are incredible, mostly volunteers, but just incredibly dedicated people uh, that come together. They, they, they give their time, their expertise, their sweat equity to, to bring our exhibits to life. And so while this summer we unveiled a new exhibit called the Venom, that was a, a great testament to what our restoration team can do. Uh, but when the F-117 gets here, that's going to be a whole new set of challenges that we're excited to tackle. Yeah, now it'll come with all those parts removed and your team has to custom make the parts to make the air, aircraft whole? Uh, that's correct. And there are a few different ways that, that you can go about doing it. One of the perhaps more innovative, uh, but also challenging approaches that, that we want to explore and going back to that, that uh, connection to community theme that we were describing earlier, is that we can leverage uh, additive manufacturing or 3D printing is a common term. But when we can take scans of the missing pieces and design them as different digital files called STL files for stereolithograph, which means that that's the file type that a 3D printed object can then be printed from. So, so if you can imagine that, that you have a, 
some sophisticated software and some resources to take these digital scans. And now we can offer a chance for schools and education, educational institutions, uh, whether it's nationwide or even globally, uh, a chance to connect with the museum, select a piece that they want to print, print that piece, and then even shipping it to the museum, uh, okay. while it might seem a little bit inefficient that, that they're printing it at the school and then putting it in a box to ship it. The idea is that, is that, again, kids of all ages can see this piece being printed and know that it's going to be installed in our F-117. And so, so there's this idea that, that wherever you are, you can now print this piece, have that piece become a part of the solution, and then have an authentic connection to the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum's F-117 Stealth Fighter, uh, which actually cool. has the, the nickname of the Lone Wolf. Wow, that is very cool. I know my, my library down here in Salt Lake has a 3D printer. I've never tried to use it, but maybe I'll go down there and do that. That sounds pretty cool. It's a pretty fun, uh, it's a pretty fun technology to get to learn and, and to see... Uh, to see all the different things it can do. Wow. Are there any other upcoming events that the community should look forward to? Absolutely. Not only are we introducing new exhibits, but really we're introducing new experiences here. One of the things that we are excited about this December will be two major events. One of them is, say, a, a gift of our aviation community because on December 17th, we celebrate the 120th anniversary of flight. So kind of on a theme of the, the Wright brothers to the right stuff, here we know that, that the Wright brothers uh, took off on the, the rolling dunes of, of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina on December 17th, 1903. And so 120 years later, we want to celebrate that experience in a meaningful way. And so that'll be a presentation with a keynote speaker who will be speaking in our giant screen theater with a live experience talking about the history of flight and his experience with it. And we're excited to share that that keynote speaker is none other than Greg Woldridge, who is the only three-time commanding officer of the Blue Angels. Wow. Uh, and if, if there's somebody that knows about the forces of flight <laughs> and the advancements of aerospace, who better to tell that story than Greg Woldridge? Oh my gosh, yeah. The Blue Angels are amazing. So that's December 17th, the 120th anniversary of flight. That's a wonderful thing. What's the second thing? The second thing is how we connect to our, our local community because we have an event that's called Holidays at the Hangar. And what that means is that we are opening our aviation museum after hours and different community organizations or companies or families or anybody can come together and actually sponsor one of our planes. Now, depending on the plane, it has a, maybe some different restrictions or opportunities associated with it. Uh, but you'll have a chance to either decorate the plane itself or decorate the space in front of the plane to really set that holiday spirit and get the community engagement in motion. So you can imagine that if you are a local baker, you may want to sponsor a particular airplane and then be serving some cookies out in front of it. Or if you were uh, a local ice cream shop, maybe you sponsor a different plane. 
and you can serve little ice cream samples in front of it. So you're you're able to promote your own business. You're doing so in a fun venue where it still fosters that community engagement and what we think is going to be a, a really delightful and meaningful experience. No, that's really wonderful. I was interviewing a historical society in Iowa. Uh, one of the things they had was a large museum in a house that was architecturally wonderful. And each room of the house was sponsored by one or more local businesses and would decorate that room for Christmas and the various holidays and do the exact same thing. I think it's a wonderful idea. Thank you very much. And, and it really is meant to be a, a symbol of our commitment to our community, that we want to stay engaged, we want to be able to tell each other's story, and we want to be able to support one another. How do you envision the museum's role in the community evolving in the coming years? We would really like to foster more experiential learning. We recognize that a portion of learning might be you know, what you read on an on a interpretive panel, or maybe there are a couple of, of digital experiences. But I think what, what's missing here at the moment and what a lot of museums are advancing towards uh, is, is either full sensory or, or uh, really tapping into as many senses as possible for experiential learning. So, so when you're talking about the four forces of flight, what does, what does drag actually feel like? What does thrust feel like? What does the wind feel like if you change the pitch of a propeller blade? Mm. Uh, what, is, what is that actually doing for you? And a lot of people, kind of a fun experiment that we've been doing, they don't always know that the spirit of St. Louis, now admittedly we have a, a replica, but the spirit of St. Louis never had a windscreen. So, so the design required a very powerful engine and a very large gas tank. And so Lindbergh ended up flying with a periscope that's off to the side. And so how do you appreciate what a periscope might look and feel like if you were trying to navigate? And so for us to have literally a small handheld periscope um, off to the side of the Spirit of St. Louis on a table and then a couple of dots on the floor and for you to go from dot one to dot two to dot three to dot four, not through your own eyes, but by looking out of this handheld periscope, that, that's what goes back to that experiential learning. You're having a whole new empathic experience for Lindbergh and what he went through. And so those are the kinds of ways that we want to make sure that our guests are inspired and they're learning in ways that are novel and unique and reflect the same innovative spirit that we want to capture throughout our museum. Oh, those are marvelous and innovative approaches, Tyson. It's time for us to take a break for a few minutes. Okay. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Embark on a journey of wonder and discovery as you step into the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in McMinnville, Oregon. 
Their thoughtfully curated exhibits span decades of history, showcasing everything from early aircraft to the marvels of cutting-edge aviation and spacecraft technology. Immerse yourself in the sights, sounds, and stories of our nation's rich aviation and space heritage as you travel through time. Make your way to the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in McMinnville, Oregon, today. For more information, visit their website at www.evergreenmuseum.org. Plan an enriching visit to this exquisite museum located at 500 Northeast Captain Michael King Smith Way, McMinnville, Oregon, 97128. You can also reach them by phone at 503-434-4180 or via email at info at evergreenmuseum.org. We invite you to visit, become a member, and lend your support to the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum today. You'll be thrilled every time you visit. You can do it. Get your future off the ground in the Air Force. Check it out and look around, get experience. That money just can't buy, it's your future. Only you can make it So, you want to join the Coast Guard. You've obviously got very high standards. Now it's time to contact a recruiter and make this happen. You have a few choices, and it all starts on GoCoastGuard.com. You'll hear back from the recruiter to set up the interview. I'm Mitzi Quintana, a recruiter based in Tampa, Florida. The recruiting process is slightly different across the country and you will have your own personal experience. But this will give you a good idea of what to expect. Come on in. Here in step one, you talk about job opportunities, pay, benefits, how to prepare for basic training, how long you can expect to serve in the Coast Guard. And we'll talk about taking the ASVAB. Another option is to take the PICAT at home prior to ASVAB testing. You'll take your ASVAB here at MEPS. That's Military Entrance Processing Station. The ASVAB is used to determine your career path and training, and you can prep for it. After working with a recruiter on your paperwork for a medical pre-screen, you'll take your physical. Once you're given the all clear, it's on to step four. They want to know your debt-to-income ratio, credit history, are you legal to work in the U.S.? We want to make sure you're squared away to serve. No surprises. National security is at stake. Can information that is vital to our country be safe in your hands? The process to make sure of that starts here. This is also the time when we select your date for your eight-week basic training and a day 
for entering the delayed entry program. You return to MEPS, where you make your commitment to the Coast Guard by taking the oath and signing your contract. And you're now officially in the depth. The reason for the delay in the delayed entry program is to give us time to complete your background check. You're good to go. You've got a date to report on the horizon. Your next step, prepping for basic training. We'll continue to get you ready for basic, both physically and mentally. Then you're set for the trip to Cape May, New Jersey. You've made it this far. You're well on your way to becoming a Coastie. To find out if you're qualified, visit GoCoastGuard.com. We aren't looking for just anybody to join the Space Force. We're calling on all late-night coders, early-morning gamers, self-proclaimed space geeks, stargazing science junkies, tireless trailblazers, daydreamers, and especially square peg in a round hole type thinkers to shape the force that protects our interests in space and our everyday lives on Earth. The only force created for the 21st century. We need people like you. So consider this your invitation. Thank you for listening to Preservation Oaks. If you're a member of a museum, historical or genealogical society that has not yet been featured as a guest on our program, please let them know to contact preservationoaks at gmail.com. We welcome everyone. Thank you. I am General Matto van du Maximanus, from the planet you refer to as BD 114672C. I am the legate of the second AB Picturis B region, governor of the approaches to NU Octantis AB, interplanetary consul, commander of the legions of AB Picturis A, 91 Aquari B, Mulionis B, and Gamma Library B. And I listen to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with our guest, Tyson Weinert, the president and CEO of the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum located in McMinnville, Oregon. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Tyson. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Can you tell us a couple of funny or interesting stories from your museum's history? Yeah, there's no shortage of, of funny stories or interesting stories for, for that matter, but what I what I appreciate about museums, especially, is that when times can be tough and you're you're trying to make sure that you're you're raising the necessary funds to keep the doors open and the lights on and, and engaging with your guests sometimes, or you're restoring a, an aircraft and you're limited on parts. So there are these these challenges ahead that may seem insurmountable or or impossible to take on, and and sometimes a little bit of humor can help change your perspective and and see. See, see your challenge through. And so with our restoration team, they were recently working on this aircraft called the Venom. 
And the, the Venom is a really interesting design. It's a post-World War II jet-powered aircraft with a twin boom designed to it. And so maybe people are more familiar with the, the P-38 Lightning, also a twin boom design, but the P-38 was propeller-driven. So when our restoration team was working on the Venom, they took it upon themselves at a certain stage to put a propeller on the nose of the plane. And, and they could see some of our guests walking by and looking at it and kind of pausing and, and you know maybe tilting their head a little bit and kind of scratching their chin on what the heck is going on there? Why would you have a propeller with a jet engine? And so, so I think that, that the idea that they could have a bit of a laugh with our, with our guests and showcase a sense of humor is what helps us get through those, those difficult times. So it's nice to be able to celebrate the accomplishments of our restoration team uh, that they could, you know, like Howard Hughes did, make the seemingly impossible become possible because some of these aircraft, when they arrive, they're on the back of a flatbed truck beat up in pieces and parts, and it's hard to know what to make of it. And then when you see the work that, that they can do and, and truly bring these aircraft back to life is, is really amazing. What's funny to me is that these the guests recognize that, you know, that was the case, that there was a propeller on a jet engine. I, I have a feeling it's because of the way that it was set up <laughs> on the, the day of, but it was it, it was a good chance for everybody to, get, to share a laugh. And then even to this day, just sharing the picture of it is what I think not only keeps us, keeps us humble, but, but keeps, us, uh, keeps us moving forward. I understand the museum helps parents plan unforgettable birthday parties for their children. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, if the the idea is that when when we want to celebrate the the life of someone, and you have an inspired child that that wants to have a good time at the museum, we're able to to celebrate life, celebrate that that curiosity, and and it all comes together in a really meaningful way at the museum. So we have different rooms uh, of different sizes that we can host birthday parties in. Can include educational experiences. We can include games and make sure that kids leave with a little gift to remember their experience by. Yeah, that is so cool. When I was a kid growing up, I would have loved to go to a, an aviation and space museum and have a birthday party. Wow, that would have been so yeah. cool. Me too. What kinds of exhibits are on display? You've mentioned the F-117 that's coming November 11th and the, the Venom that came in the summer, but what else is on display? Oh, there's so, so many cool things, and it's hard to. <laughs> it's hard to to limit it to just a few here, but I think most of what I described is on the the aviation side. But on the on the space side, we have the the Titan II space launch vehicle, and so that played such a pivotal role in space exploration and history. So we have a number of exhibits on the space side that that um, everything from a, a Sputnik replica uh, to to understanding satellites in general to understanding the Apollo missions and the Gemini missions. And soon, uh, what I'm really excited about is, is how we get to tell the story about Mars. So on the space side, it brings people on this, this journey from, they typically start in the Aviation Museum, and you can certainly have a deep appreciation for the past and what these, these innovative minds did to make the seemingly impossible become possible, like, like Howard Hughes said, or, or to accomplish these, these, these tasks, perhaps through a historical lens. And then as we go to the space side, you go through this transition uh, with an eye to the future. 
And so it's a nice opportunity to really see these compelling innovations in, in such a, a meaningful way that in, in some cases are experiential themselves. But then when, when we see what the headlines are, as you described earlier, between what some of these, these privatized companies are, are doing for space exploration, I think it, it makes that transformation quite memorable of appreciating the past with an eye to the future. Yeah, I'm also seeing the James Webb spacecraft right now, the James Webb telescope, just tearing mm-hmm. things up as far as the Big Bang. At least I, I keep seeing videos saying how, you know, this piece of the Big Bang is now obsolete and this piece of the Big Bang is now obsolete. And I don't know if any of them are true, but it seems to be really disproving some of the scientific theories right now. Well, and and what I love about that is is it already exemplifies our mission. Yeah. So it's solving it's solving that appetite for curiosity, and it's it's forcing us to have the courage to interpret new information in ways that disrupt our mental models. Yeah. And so when we put those together, we now have the confidence to take on either a new point of view or a willingness to accept that things may not be as we once seen or as they as they once seen to us. And so so that idea that we're constantly learning, we're constantly uh, remaining open to new information and ways to interpret it. This is really, again, a, an exciting time to be alive and see this technology and, and what it can do for us. It sure is. We could be on the ground floor of Captain Kirk, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. I understand you have simulator exhibits. What can you tell us about those? Sure. So we've had a great partnership with the team from the Microsoft Flight Simulator, and we are really appreciative of all of the hard work and the sophisticated thinking by the entire team led by Jorg Newman. And a couple of years ago, we arranged for a partnership where they could come to the museum and take digital scans of the, the Hughes Flying Boat, also more commonly known as the Spruce Goose, and as well as four other exhibits that we have at the museum. And so on November 10th of 2022, Microsoft Flight Simulator launched the 40th anniversary edition of Microsoft Flight Simulator. So it's the longest running Microsoft franchise. And when they did, they included the Spruce Goose as part of it. And so it was a really, really special moment because they came up with the tagline of, of before this day, only one person had ever flown the Spruce Goose. And after this day, anyone can fly the Spruce Goose. And that really, that really sent a powerful signal because here we are as a museum focused on the physical preservation of all of these amazing exhibits and artifacts. And they focused on the digital preservation, which takes learning and experiential learning to a a whole new level. And so to continue to collaborate with one another and share these experiential stories, we actually converted one of the rooms in the museum to become a flight training center. And so this would be the only place in the world where you can look at the actual Spruce Goose and then fly a digital representation of the Spruce Goose uh, because of the technology that Microsoft Flight Simulator designed. Wow, that is so cool. Uh, Thank you for that, that is really cool. 
Absolutely. And if you really wanted to go for it, we have a full motion simulator too. So rather than just sitting at a desk and flying a, a simulator where you remain stationary, uh, we do have a full motion simulator that takes it to the, the whole, whole next level, as you can imagine. Yeah, that's way cool. Now, is that something that is on all the time whenever you visit the museum? As long as we keep the maintenance up and running, which uh, we always strive for, then the answer is yes. Wow, cool. Tyson, are there any plans to expand the museum's collection in the future? There, there are in a couple different ways. So while we are grateful for the partnership with the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force and how we have the F-117 uh, lone wolf arriving here in the near future, we recognize that in the era of space exploration that, that we are in, there are some amazing companies from the private sector that are rapidly innovating. And so because of the privatization of space and because of the, the story that we want to tell, we would love to continue these kinds of partnerships. And perhaps it's with SpaceX or perhaps it's with Blue Origin or, or any number of organizations that are in this space. Because to inspire our visitors in such a way that shows the disruptive technology where the private sector can get involved, we would love to be a partner to be able to do that. Fantastic. Now, Tyson, I ask this question of everybody. If your building were to catch fire, what things would you grab on your way out? Oh, that is a very difficult question to, to answer when you have the world's largest wooden airplane. Yeah. But I would say that, that something that's really special, not only about having the spruce goose here, was how many elements from the Howard Hughes collection that we also have. And, and to me, what's truly special are how many original drawings by Howard Hughes and his team. So should we smell smoke and hear alarms, that is the area I'm going to first to make sure that we can preserve these absolutely precious and priceless drawings. I didn't realize you had all that. That's fantastic. So you have yeah. so when Howard Hughes was designing the Spruce Goose, he did all all manner of drawings inside and out of the details of the of the plane and you've got those. That's correct. We have perhaps not a 100% complete set, but we have a very large collection of his original drawings including some of the prototypes and some of the designs that that were not selected for the for the final oh, design, uh, cool. but it's it's important to show not only what was he thinking, but how he was thinking, because he was already laying out redundant systems, contemplating the impact of hydraulic controls, et cetera. And so, to be able to recognize just how far ahead of his time he was, those drawings become the the date timestamp of his innovative thinking. Hmm. Yeah, because when I look at the Spruce Goose and I see how big it is and so on, and then somebody says to me, it's made out of plywood, I start going downhill a little bit, you know? I start going, ah, they made it out of plywood. But you're saying the exact opposite. It may be made out of plywood, but it is innovative. Uh, absolutely. And, and one of my favorite parts of the story and the fact that the Hughes flying boat is here in Oregon, I often catch myself saying that 
it is back in Oregon. And the reason why is that Spruce Goose was was meant to be a, a term that that mocked Howard Hughes by Owen Brewster when he was trying to accuse Howard Hughes of, of wasting the government's money. Um, and so to say it was the Spruce Goose, when, when in actuality, most of the wood used to craft what's called duramold, uh, which is that, that sense of plywood, but most of the wood that, that was used for duramold is actually yellow birch. And a lot of that yellow birch was sourced from lumber yards in Oregon. And so for the Spruce Goose to, to have been moved from Long Beach to McMinnville, Oregon, we like to say is, is it has come home to its roots. No kidding. Wow. That's very cool. What kind of funding model supports the museum and what are your funding goals this year? We really strive to have a, a diverse portfolio of funding opportunities. In doing so, we want to make sure that that anyone that contributes to our efforts does so with the sense of of having an authentic connection. So if anybody was just to to make a straight donation or if they wanted to contribute specifically to a cause like restoring the F117 or preserving the spruce goose that they have the opportunity to do so. And so we're one of the few museums that that has very strong earned revenue and is continuing to to expand our our opportunities for unearned revenue or you could argue from a through a philanthropic lens so we have very strong performance on our earned revenue side and we are in many ways innovating the ways that we can connect more through a philanthropic lens so from a lot of grants that we're competing for and philanthropic organizations, I think when people see our financial performance, the sheer grit and determination of our crew and how hard everybody's working to take our museum to the next level, it inspires people to say, yes, I want to be a part of that. I want to support this vision of where they're going. And then their, their generous contributions, especially through a philanthropic, philanthropic lens, are going to help us get there. Yeah, very good answer. Thank you. Plus, your restoration group is is volunteers, right? We have one paid restoration manager who's on staff, and, and he's incredible in his own right. But the way that he leads our, our restoration volunteers is, is really special because he demystifies restoration. The idea that, that we have a, an accomplished fire chief, he hung up his fire hose and his axe to pick up a hammer and well, everybody has to do their share of sanding, but the idea that it doesn't matter what your background was, but that you can join our museum in a number of different different ways. But through our restoration team, we take a diverse set of thinkers and doers and, and put them to work with some, some great projects. Yeah, I guess my, my point was those restoration skills, you know, are, are advanced skills in some cases. You know, those aren't your normal handyman skills. Let's put it that way. Uh, that is that is fair to say. And of course, being an education institution, it's not always our guests that learn, but we want to support the kinds of opportunities for our staff and volunteers to continue to learn new skills. And so that's another way of, of connecting with our, our diverse funding portfolio to make sure that, that we're able to look after our own crew so that we can give back 
to the community by continuing to offer new, exciting, and innovative exhibits. Yeah, and people can get really jazzed about that. You know, like the F-117 coming in and all the work that has to be done to restore that. If people see that in its original state and then over time they visit the museum and they see its phases of restoration, that's, that would jazz me. Now on your donations page, there's a statement, help us reach our ambitious goals to raise funds for multiple projects focused on aviation preservation and summer camp scholarships. Your donation gives the museum the resources needed to spark a passion for aerospace innovation in learners of all ages. Can you help us understand what preservation projects are underway and what camp scholarships are provided annually? Sure. So our preservation projects, not only do we have to support the new exhibits coming in, but we have to keep our existing exhibits clean, fresh, and safe. So there's always going to be an effort to making sure that anybody coming through, whether it's your your first time through or your 101st time through, that you appreciate the level of effort that it takes to keep this museum operational. And so that's a big part of where our philanthropic efforts and a big part of where the generosity can be applied to. If, If it goes towards something more specific, Perhaps it supports a restricted fund or a very specific project. And in the case of education, we have really, really wonderful summer camps. One of them is is tailored more towards the aviation side. The other is tailored more towards the space, or we call it a a galaxy camp. And so the idea is that we want to support continued learning, experiential learning, especially during the summertime when when kids are out of school, so so that they can have a sense of being productive and satisfied with the experiences that they have with our museum. And so for the community that we want to support, not everybody can afford our summer camps. And of course, we try to be as reasonably priced as possible, especially when compared to some of the other summer camp options in, in the, the more metropolitan areas. Mm. But but if if we're able to support scholarships, so if somebody was to feel so generous as to say, well, I want to make sure that these kids that wouldn't have otherwise been able to go now have a chance to go, then we want to have the mechanisms in place to support that that level of giving and that incredible generosity. Yeah, fantastic. What kinds of fundraising activities or opportunities does your museum offer? Well, they can range in a, in a variety of experiences. Some of them can be face-to-face or experiential in terms of a, a traditional gala. Other experiences can be where you pay, you might pay to buy a, buy a ticket to then come to the museum to hear somebody with a, a live presentation, or it's to do a special meet and greet. And, and so those are the kinds of events that we would want to be very external and public about so we can be as inclusive as possible. Other opportunities might be more of a discreet or private kind of experience that we can support. So if it's a a behind the scenes kind of a tour of the collection or even sharing very unique views of those drawings like we were talking about from Howard Hughes or private tours of the Spruce Goose, there are some different ways that we can customize the experience for different donors so that they feel like they've had something that is truly unique to their interests and that we foster that authentic connection. Yeah, very cool. 
Now you have membership levels, right? And you mentioned membership levels at various dollar amounts. I don't think you mentioned the dollar amounts, but $1 amount would be $75 for an individual membership, right? Uh, correct. And then it goes on to family memberships of 175 yeah, so so different uh, offerings are associated with yeah. with each level of membership, and we often use the term delighter. So at this level, what is something else that we could offer that delights the member in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be able to to experience the museum? And so that's that's been, I think, a, a fun challenge to accept how we can differentiate our membership level so that people want to come to the Evergreen Aviation Space Museum to leverage our own membership, knowing that we are a Smithsonian affiliate and knowing that they can they can leverage that membership elsewhere is also. Right, right. Do you have any annual festivals or annual activities for members? Uh, we have a number of members-only events, and that's pretty exciting because a lot of times members will get the exclusive first viewing or exclusive first access or even limited access. So you could imagine for for the Venom, before we did the unveiling to the public, uh, we did a members only uh, experience, which was which was a really a really great time for more of a, uh, an intimate connection and plus to foster the kind of environment where members get to connect with other members. And so they share their stories, they share their favorite exhibits. And to be able to have a comprehensive learning experience whereby we learn from them as much as they are learning from us. That's part of the relationship that we want to foster with our members. Cool. Are you going to unveil the F-117 unrestored for those special members or restored? There will be a series of engagements because it's a multi-year restoration. And so, so for the very first unveiling, we're sharing that to be as inclusive as possible. So our big unveiling on November 11th will be open to the public for those who have purchased the, the tickets. So there were, there were no restrictions necessarily on that because we wanted to have uh, just kind of a, a, a clean slate and a, um, uh, an inclusive posture without any, any restrictions there. Once we welcome the F-117 and then we go into the different phases or different milestones of the restoration process, then we can do some members-only events to talk about what is it about the 3D printing experience. Maybe members want to select a particular piece that they want to install. So, so you can imagine rather than a buy a brick campaign, that there's an element where the members feel truly connected to the F-117 themselves because of the ways that they can interact with our programs. Yeah, that would be way cool. Now, you mentioned that you're an educational museum. What kind of outreach and education does the museum undertake within the community? So there are a couple of different ways. The obvious is where a lot of school programs come to the museum, and those are wonderful. The idea that when the school bus shows up and there's certainly an energy that comes with it, whatever is happening, uh, I think for any of my staff that day, if you're having a bad day, when you look out the window or you see these kids all, all charged up, that's a great way to, to recalibrate your perspective on the day and, and know that you're making an impact right then and there. Yeah. So it's always great to have the schools come to us, but we also have a, a growing team on our, on our education side where, where we can go to the school. So that's like a reverse field trip. 
And so the, the more we can craft those kinds of experiences and opportunities is, is a constant area that we are learning, adapting, and innovating to make sure that we can offer meaningful experiences on our reverse field trips. And then the third avenue is for different remote learning experiences. So it used to be where you used, you'd have a, a fixed camera and uh, or maybe even like a, a laptop computer which has its own restrictions just based on the size. But now as, as cameras get smaller and even just the capabilities that you have just from a smartphone, to be able to go inside of a cockpit or to show different elements of a particular aircraft or spacecraft that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to show, it means that the virtual learning can be a very compelling option as well. And a lot of that was prototyped and tested during the pandemic. But being able to refine it in such a way that doesn't take people back to the frustration of the pandemic, but instead inspires them to foster a sense of accessibility so that somebody that wouldn't have otherwise had a chance to see this now gets to see this because of the way that we can foster these educational experiences with them. Yeah, I never thought of that. That would be way cool. That's such an opportunity for everyone. Wow. Absolutely. Does the museum publish a newsletter? We do. We have a newsletter that everybody is welcome to sign up for, and that is through our website, just the bottom of the homepage. You can, you can click and enter your email address and, and join the newsletter. And then, of course, there's the members-only newsletter, and that's where you, you see a bit more of a, a sneak peek on some of the members-only um, opportunities. The members-only zone also has a chance to, to click around to learn different parts of the museum just differentiates itself from the, the mass mailing uh, as it goes out. And so the whole idea is that we want to make sure that, that the value of becoming a member is preserved and that it is obvious to those who, who join our museum as members that they can appreciate how well that they're looked after and that they're truly part of something special. I noticed you also partner with Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts so that the kids can get badges from the museum for doing different work at the museum. That's correct. And, and going back to our founder, um, Captain Michael King Smith went through his full journey to become an Eagle Scout. And so part of the museum's heritage is to honor the scouting community. And so while we can't do the, the camping excursions like they used to back in the day, the idea that you can still offer these, these opportunities to earn the merit badges and just continue to foster that, that place to, to test and experiment and, and, and learn with their own scouting curriculum is still a great opportunity that we want to preserve. I understand you also have close relationships with several other community organizations. What can you tell us about those? There are some great organizations at different levels throughout our community. So localized organizations within McMinnville or different organizations that champion the visitor community and the tourist community throughout Yamhill County, and then you can go statewide. So the idea that, that our, our Chamber of Commerce is very active and we appreciate being engaged with, with other institutions in the area that, that they can come and enjoy the museum in a, in a variety of different ways connecting with different news outlets is important on how we are able to tell our story. And of course, with, with different school districts and educational institutions, because 
again, just like so many of these these aerospace companies that that are evolving, the way that education takes place is certainly evolving. And one of my favorite stories is around the homeschool community. So just speaking from my own experience, there were times where I struggled reading a physics book and trying to figure out how fast this object was going and crunching numbers. And, and, and when I actually started flying and I could appreciate the, the sheer size or mass of an object because I'm seeing it right in front of me, it really helped internalize what I was learning about physics. And so for school districts to empower their students to come through traditional field trips, but also the network of non-traditional educational organizations and through homeschools. At one point, we had a collection of over 300 kids from all over the state because of some great logistical planning by the organizers. They all came together for a truly wonderful educational experience. And so the idea that the museum can can not only host that, but become a, a center of gravity for that kind of learning, for that community development, really takes that community connection to a whole new level. Fantastic. Now, we love volunteers. What kinds of volunteer opportunities does the museum have for members and the public? I share your same appreciation for volunteers in a very meaningful way. And, and I think for, for my own experience is that I know my career and my trajectory in life could not have taken place had it not been for volunteers that inspired me and, and looked after me. So through, through the Coast Guard Auxiliary is how I got to learn about the Coast Guard. And, and that set me on, a, on, on my own life's journey. And now coming back to the museum, when I see the amazing volunteers that are here that are just so inspiring, they, they give of themselves for someone else's meaningful experience every day. And they do it in just such special ways. Uh, and so one of my favorite examples is, is what I often refer to as the unsung heroes who are our amazing volunteers managing our collection. So these are the people that are, that are coming in. They don't always get to see our, our special guests all the time and, and be able to engage with, with our visitors from all over the world. But they're there to preserve the rigor of our accession and deaccession programs to look after all of our different artifacts that, to make sure that the collection is, is well-preserved and to really help keep things in order. And so, so when you know that, that the collection is safe because of these dedicated volunteers, we certainly want to make sure that they are recognized for, for their efforts. And so in these three categories of, of, of singing the praises of our collections volunteers, like I just did, and then our restoration volunteers as I did previously. And then of course the people that that are the the face of the museum to all of our guests are the docents. And so for their their passion and their storytelling and the way that they engage with our visitors is so cool. And what I love about it is the diversity of our docents. So so there's not a requirement that you have to be retired to be a docent. <laughs> and I think if I can help demystify that, that whatever capacity you're able to share with the museum as a volunteer, we have we have a means to connect with you. And so I love seeing docents of, of, of various ages and various backgrounds to be a part of our mission and to advance that connection to our growing community. Yep, fantastic. Tyson, it's time for us to take a break for a few minutes. Okay. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. 
calling all educators and parents. Dive into the captivating educational programs offered by the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. From interactive school visits to hands-on workshops, they provide immersive experiences that breathe life into the world of aviation and space technology and history. Kindle a passion for learning in young minds and spark inspiration in the upcoming generation to treasure our shared heritage. Get in touch with the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum located in McMinnville, Oregon, to discover more. You can explore their offerings on the web at www.evergreenmuseum.org. Plan an unforgettable visit to this exquisite museum at 500 Northeast Captain Michael King Smith Way, McMinnville, Oregon. Reach out by phone at 503-434-4180 or drop them an email at info at evergreenmuseum.org. Please make it a point to visit, become a member, and support the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum today. Your family and students will be forever enriched by the experience. I was created by a blacksmith named John, who made me out of steel and wood. I was so slick. John took me around to all the farms and sold me to Bill Warner. Bill used me every season and I did my job with Cosmo and Rusty Pulling. Before I came along, days in the field were difficult for farmers, because they had to regularly interrupt their work to clean the sticky prairie soil off the share. I worked every season. After 30 seasons, and several changes of animals pulling me, my blades were greased, I was put into the shed and not used again. I was replaced by newer models with more bottoms and pulled using an engine. I lay there for years, collecting dust. The wood on me rotting. Finally, Bill's son pulled me out of there and donated me to the local historical society. They cataloged me, shined me up, oiled me, and made sure all my wooden parts were like new. Now, I'm on display for everyone, and they marvel at my simple design. There's a sign next to me telling people that my name is Grasshopper made by John. I feel so proud that I can help others understand the past which I guess I'm now a part of. Rather than throwing it out, please donate historical records and objects to your local historical society, today. Hello my plebes. This is Cleopatra, Queen of the Nile. While I'm waiting for Mark Anthony, I'm listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Nine out of ten listeners agree, Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. This is Melody Lager, president of the Heartland Museum, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Martin Mahoney, Executive Director of the Bennington Museum, and I enjoyed being a guest on Preservation Oaks with Sean Radcliffe. This is Heather Moran, the President of the Camden Rockport Historical Society, and you're listening to Preservation Oaks. This is Amber Colbert, the administrator of Park County Museum in Henderson, Nevada. I had a lot of fun as a guest on Preservation Oaks. 
And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. Hey, I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with our guest, Mr. Tyson Weiner, the president and CEO of the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum located in McMinnville, Oregon. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Tyson. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. What kinds of interesting books has your museum published? Well, we like to feature the history of the museum and that is captured in a in a wonderful book that really features Dell Smith and his family and their passion on how they they went from a bold vision to actually bring the spruce goose to Oregon and then be able to start the museum and that has been the the main book that organically came from this effort we do support a number of of books so while we are able to feature a lot of different uh, books capturing uh, some heroic experiences and stories throughout aviation and space exploration, what, one of the books that I'm excited about is just about to be announced. And so we have a docent here that has worked tirelessly to tell the Spruce Goose's story to be the most factually accurate story yet to be to be published and so when you can take the the passion of a dedicated researcher and combine that with the collaboration of our community of volunteers and then expand that even further to the community of enthusiasts uh, that really want to support the sharing of the hughes flying boat as the spruce goose then then to be able to take those strides and celebrate all of that research and all of that hard work as our next project is a book is pretty exciting. And so those details will be coming out in the new year. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited. I commented on this earlier. You have a really beautiful and functional website. Really nice job on that. Thank you. What kinds of things are available to do on your museum's website? Well, the funny thing about websites is they're they're constantly changing. So so with my background in, in human centered design and and it intersects with agile development, the idea that you want to make the most popular items accessible and easy to find. So we don't always get it right, but we're constantly learning and striving to make things better. A big a big portion of that is can you get the information that you need to visit? So making sure that the operating hours are, are easy to get to. We're, we're open the vast majority of the year, including even uh, New Year's Day is, is actually a really fun day to come to the museum. And so being able to communicate with our, our guests, but then going beyond that, when we get into um, our membership community, and making sure that members are well-informed and well-looked after, and that people that are member curious uh, have a chance to actually complete that process remotely. So you don't have to do it by being at the museum in person, but you can actually sign up for your membership at a different level and you can do so through our website. 
Of course, you can buy tickets uh, through our website, and that includes tickets for general admission or tickets to the different special events that we have taking place. And then, of course, you can also choose to donate or support different projects through our website. And so, so we constantly want to want to connect in in meaningful ways to those who are engaging with us digitally. And so, we're we're offering new and exciting opportunities to do so all the time. So I'll say we're we're proud of where we are, but know that we still have a lot of work to do to to get to where we want to be. Yeah, your website's really great. I want to give the contact information for your website. It's www.evergreenmuseum.org. You're also on Facebook at Evergreen Museum. You're on YouTube, Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. Your address is 500 Northeast Captain Michael King Smith Way, McMinnville, Oregon. You can phone the museum at 503-434-4180. You can email them at info at evergreenmuseum.org. Admission to the museum is $22 for adults. Veterans and seniors are $18. Youths from 5 to 15 are $12. And children under 5 are free. That all sound right? Yes, sir. All right. Fantastic. It mentions on your website that one of your goals is to reimagine the Aviation and Space Museum. How are you doing that, and what's changed as a result? A big part of how we want to reimagine our museum is through that experiential lens. So thinking about our museum doesn't start after you've parked the car. It actually starts when you first have the idea. So maybe maybe it's because you've just landed at Portland Airport and you're appreciating the aircraft that brought you here and now you want to learn more about aviation. So so the idea that we can be appealing to people wherever you are means that you're you're likely to start your experience through a digital format first, then you should be able to connect the dots to get you to where you want to be, which hopefully is inside of our doors having a wonderful time. Oh, fantastic. Do you have any SpaceX rockets or spacecraft in the museum? Uh, at the moment, we have 3D printed representations uh, of a few different rockets, but nothing formal or specifically branded from any of the privatized space exploration organizations. Okay. Can the kids buy patches for all the space programs and military aviation programs in the museum's gift shop? Well, not only can you buy the patches themselves, but you can also buy either a flight jacket or a flight suit to put them on. Oh, cool. Wow. I would have loved that when I was a kid. Whoa, that's nice. Thank you. At space camp, what do the kids do? Well, there are a lot of different activities, and they, they really span in a, in a number of different ways. So for our, our galaxy camp, which is, which is how we refer to the space side, a big Part of the experience, which goes back to my, my roots in human-centered design, is, is this idea of the, the paper rocket. And so the, what the paper rocket does is it gives kids a chance to design their own rocket, but then have the willingness to try it, see what happens, and then make a correction or an adaptation on very short order. And so what you're doing is you're fostering rapid iteration which means that you don't have to get it perfect on the first time. What you have to do is make something to try. So be curious and make it, have the courage to try it, 
and then make those corrections. And the more and more you do this loop, which is the, the design thinking or human-centered design kind of a loop, the more confident you are with your final product. And so, so driving in or integrating an innovative methodology within the Galaxy Camp experience means that kids are able to make these rockets in a collaborative way, test them, refine them, test them again, et cetera. And then at the end of the Galaxy Camp, they actually get to see a proper rocket kit that'll launch over a thousand feet up in the sky. Oh, wow. Oh, way to go. That's cool. Does it come down with a parachute and all that? There, there are a few different, different models. And of course, the idea is that they are reusable. So there are different technologies that, that enable that to happen. Nice. Boy, they get a kick out of that, I bet. It's fun. We used to do that when I was a kid is, is fire off rockets. You could buy them, at, you know, you could buy them on, on out of the magazines, right? That's right. At That's the right. hobby store and that kind of thing. Can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the museum that you want people of your area to know about and support? So one of the, the big initiatives that we're excited about is not only supporting the, the tangible elements that we have at the museum, if that's a specific exhibit or a specific aircraft or specific spacecraft that somebody wants to support in a very dedicated way. There are also the intangible ways that people can support our efforts and giving us the, the freedom to continue to innovate, adapt, and expand our offerings is a very important part of how we can leverage the philanthropic efforts of our community and continue to offer these kinds of experiences in, in new and meaningful ways. And so one of the ways that we, we bring that to life, and, and maybe you remember this, you know, when we were kids, how many people asked us, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. And what that question does is that that drives home the assumption that you already know your career or that that career exists. And instead, what we like to ask here at the museum is what kinds of problems might you want to solve in your life? And, and by subtly reframing the, the question in that way, introduces a whole new challenge because there are there are yet to be defined careers out there. Yeah. And so so if kids say, well, I want to know how to grow plants on Mars, well, that's cool. Then then you would start to introduce a, a new lens of of botany in space in a way that that does maybe that career path doesn't quite exist yet. And so so when we get into the intangibles of how we can apply philanthropic gifts to expand our education programs. We don't always have a name for what we're going to do, but we know the general direction and we want to reserve the right to innovate in service of whomever provided that generous gift so that everybody's going to be satisfied and delighted by the outcome. Wow, fantastic. Okay, thank you. Thank you. What are your thoughts about how best to keep history and community support flourishing for the current generation, the K through 12 people? I think it's going to be a series of storytelling and it's going to be a hybrid model of storytelling in the traditional sense, which means you unplug from everything and you just talk. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so you can unplug 
and and have a, a live storytelling experience, I think is is one critical component. But then the other side is going to be the digital experience on what do recorded stories do for you that inspire you and connect with you in different ways. And so when we start to see augmented reality and virtual reality becoming more and more common with our storytelling experiences, I think that's going to be a real game changer for the entire uh, museum community. Are you talking about Meta? So Meta is the, is the parent organization of, of all sorts of companies. So Oculus is the, is the virtual reality headset device that's part of the, the Meta family of companies. And so that, that's a big part of learning. But what I'm, I'm most intrigued by is, is the model that the airlines have already taught us. So think of how many flights you've been on where there was a, a screen on the, the backside of the headrest in front of you. Yeah. But what happens when that screen fails? And, and the airlines take on the burden of maintaining that screen. But now everybody's shifted to, almost everybody has shifted to a bring your own device type of model. And so when we see an entire industry transforming to a bring your own device model, that suggests that that same application can take place in museums. So the idea that I don't need a, a fancy digital screen in front of every single exhibit, what I need is, is a place for, for our guests to connect to digitally so that they can use their own device in something that they're already familiar with to learn or have a compelling experience that they wouldn't have otherwise had. All right. When I was a kid, I went to the St. Louis Zoo, I believe it was, and they gave you a device when you went in and... It talked to you through the entire walk through the zoo, and somehow it knew where you were. I don't know. Sure. I can't remember if it, if you put it up to a sign or something like that, but it would tell you about the lions, and it would tell you about every exhibit that they had as you walked through. It was pretty cool. Yeah, and you're seeing that kind of experience evolve in a lot of different ways. The, the technologies that support that experiential learning is exactly the direction that we want to go in, but perhaps in yet to be imagined uh, ways. Yeah. You could do so much with those machines that you have there in exhibits. There's so much to tell because there's so much technology and history there. Absolutely. Why is the museum important to the community and what makes your organization different or unique from others? I think the museum itself is important to the community because it's a symbol of resiliency and it's a symbol of dedication. And so when, when we're thinking about these challenges, especially for, for people quite literally within a 100-mile radius, they've seen these challenges over the past few years. Oregon has had its share of, of fires, its share of freezes, and then certainly going through the pandemic. And yet there's something really special about the drive uh, when you come here because of the way that these incredibly designed and the architecture of these buildings is so unique. And so when people do this drive and all of a sudden these, these incredible structures appear, it's a bold site that is still inviting and inspiring and drives people to come want to learn more. And so I think that that's a really important part of the community is that, is that we've celebrated our, our 22nd year 
and and the museum opened its its doors on June 6, 2001 for the Aviation Museum and ever since it has wanted to remain connected to our community but to do so in ways that aren't necessarily stuck in the past but in ways that that celebrate progression towards the future which is what innovation and education should be doing anyway. Right. That's fantastic. Thank you. My pleasure. Is there any other information or any message you'd like the community or members to know about? While the museum has been around for 22 years, what's exciting now is the team that's behind the scenes keeping the museum going. And so after the pandemic, the way that we reassembled ourselves, and, and even with me, having only been at the museum for a little over a year, in many ways, we think of ourselves as a, a scrappy startup. And so we have passionate, dedicated, just truly amazing people that I refer to as, as crew. And the reason why I use the word crew is because crew is the most inclusive term that I can think of that represents everybody in the same way. So for our amazing board members that volunteer, to all of the other docents and restoration and collections volunteers that we mentioned, as well as all of our employees, from our seasonal employees to our full-time staff, and like I said, everybody that's behind the scenes, our crew cares. And, and they care for designing the kinds of experiences that are really going to resonate with all of our guests, because we recognize the opportunity cost. And, and it's not that we're competing with other museums, we recognize that we're competing with any other experience. And, and we certainly want the community to, to have their experiences with us. So sharing their time, sharing their stories, and just sharing that sense of togetherness with us at the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum, it means so much. And our crew is working so hard to design and, and foster these experiences for our guests to take advantage of. And so we look forward to our continued growth we look forward to the opportunities that are on the horizon, and we look forward to resonating with a number of people that want to share in our vision uh, so they can help us craft and fund and, and bring these exciting concepts to, to life, just like Captain Michael King Smith did uh, with his original vision. So, so we want to capture that spirit. Uh, we want to advance it for, for, what, for what we think is going to be incredible learning experiences for many, many years to come. Hey, you've got so many great things going on. It's it's very exciting. Fantastic work. Thank you so much. We we are equally excited. Reflecting just a bit, how do you think your members, volunteers, and the community view the museum in terms of benefit and value? For anybody to assess the benefit and value of the museum, there is a a timeline associated with that. In many cases, there are the immediate satisfaction elements. So how easy was it to, to purchase the ticket? How easy was it to integrate what they learned online with, with their actual arrival? But what we hope is that the value remains well beyond their museum experience. So that when, they, when they're talking about a story of the last time they saw the Spruce Goose and that they feel inspired to come back. That's really a big, a big driver of the, the, the value that we think people are going to start to see more and more because we're refreshing a lot of elements at the museum. We're telling our story in different and meaningful ways. 
and we want to make sure that there's that opportunity to come back so that people see the the value and they they fully appreciate the value of what they're investing in, which is our educational institution. Fantastic. Thank you. Tyson, I, I appreciate you very much. I appreciate the time that you spent with us today. I've gotten a better understanding of your museum, its positive value, and why people need to support it. I think when young people have the opportunity to witness, learn about, and engage with these remarkable machines and concepts, the seeds of aviation and space exploration are sown in their minds through the museum. So thank you for your invaluable contributions and preservation of our history. Well, thank you. Like so many elements that we, that we showcase in our museum, it's never about one person that, that made it happen. It's the collaborative spirit. So I'm grateful for you, for the opportunity to share our story, and for you to foster these kinds of experiences where people can learn more about the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. So it's great to, great to collaborate with you. Thank you. You're very welcome. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Mr. Tyson Weinert, the president and CEO of the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in McMinnville, Oregon. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. Welcome back. You know, as the host of Preservation Oaks, I'm in the envious position of being able to talk with some of the most exceptional people in our nation. Those who are preserving our history and educating the next generation of children about that history so that they hopefully don't repeat the same mistakes made in the past. When I sat down to chat with Mr. Tyson Weinert, the president and CEO of the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum, Little did I suspect that his knowledge and excitement about the mission of the museum and what I learned about his leadership style and his innovative thinking and creativity about education would impress me so much that by the end of our time together, I would consider joining the museum as a member myself. Because it's a great museum, and it's that important. In the early 20th century, Many different innovations occurred simultaneously in the United States. One of them was the automobile, which revolutionized ground travel. Then there was the tractor, which revolutionized agriculture. And the next was the airplane, which revolutionized air travel. Each one of these took about the first half of the 20th century to develop, with various iterations to mature and reach a level of technical prowess and widespread adoption. These transformative technological shifts required courage, commitment, investments, time for the technology to evolve, for infrastructure to develop, and for industries to adapt and grow. As soon as air travel was mature enough to have airlines and regularly scheduled flights, and after World War II, then the jet engine was invented then rockets, 
And that all led to the human race to space. Now the U.S. has the sixth branch of our military known as the Space Force and private companies working with our government to plan future bases on the Earth's moon and then on to Mars. Each one of these huge leaps changed our country and the world we live in forever, and each is a part of our history, which deserves to be preserved and told. The Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in McMinnville, Oregon, is telling the story of aviation and space flight. They've preserved and maintained many different and unique examples of the iterative machines that have taken our country and the world through the developmental stages of aviation and spaceflight to where we are today. And they haven't stopped there. They're getting an F-117 Nighthawk stealth fighter on November 11th to add to the museum's collections. The Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum is in a beautiful building, which is truly inspirational in and of itself. But it's also an educational institution and as such is a force of curiosity and courage in Oregon. Anyone in the area or in Portland or Salem would be very wise to invest in and support this institution because they have a bright future ahead. The museum is impeccably managed and focused on the things that are within the realm of possible for their future and the future of the children that participate in their educational programs and camps. As Tyson put it, every day is a school day at the museum. There's always something fun and interesting going on at the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. On December 17th, Greg Wooldridge who is the only commanding officer to have led the Blue Angels for three tours, will be at the museum to speak in order to help celebrate the 120th anniversary of flight. That's going to be a great time. I encourage all of you to get involved, to visit often, to engage with your children, and to join them in imagining and accomplishing the mission. The museum has taken great strides to ensure members are well cared for. Members get to attend galas, presentations, meet and greets, private experiences, tours, and members-only events. The contact information for the museum, you can find them on the web at www.evergreenmuseum.org. On Facebook, they are at Evergreen Museum. On YouTube, they're at Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. Their address is 500 Northeast Captain Michael King Smith Way, McMinnville, Oregon 97128. Their phone is 503-434-4180. Their email is info at evergreenmuseum.org. Admission to the museum for adults is $22. Veterans and seniors are $18. Youths 5 to 15 are $12 and children under five are free. If questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the museum via the contact information provided. You can also connect with them if you're interested in 3D printing parts for the F-117 Nighthawk Stealth Fighter. If you're a listener in the area the museum serves and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting them. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the museum is to the community 
and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to their members and the public. The Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum, located in McMinnville, Oregon, is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, Symbol Bird, Audio Zen, Carmen Maria, and Edu Espinal, and Maruto Allegretto. MicroStream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by MicroStream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. See you all next time on Preservation Oaks. And until then, keep on giving and keep on living the good life.